0: My friend, thank you so much for downloading this podcast, and it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's truth tool. My truth tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles and we're wondering whether or not God has left us. We've walked away from him. What in the world we're doing, if we're even in the center of his will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge and all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-Janet-58. That's 877-Janet-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with org, Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-Janet58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now, please enjoy the program.
1: Here are some of the news headlines we're watching.
2: the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans
1: worshiping government over God. An
3: Extremely rare safety move by a nation.
4: 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. <laughs>
0: Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. A very happy Thursday to you. We're going to start once again by looking at what's going on in the nation of Israel. Israel today faced significant security challenges, including a deadly terror attack near a Jerusalem checkpoint where three terrorists from the Bethlehem area attacked vehicles in traffic with automatic weapons, resulting in one death and almost a dozen injuries. And in addition, the Israeli military successfully intercepted a ballistic missile aimed at Eliot with its Aero Air Defense System. An anti-tank missile launched from Lebanon made a direct hit on a home from northern, in northern Israel. Once again, we are reminded that this was one of Israel's biggest concerns, and that was a multi-front assault. Here's more from CBN News.
3: The Knesset overwhelmingly backed Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's statement that Israel rejects international attempts to impose a Palestinian state.
4: The people of Israel and their elected representatives are united today as never before. Such an attempt will only endanger Israel and will prevent the genuine peace that we all seek.
3: Israel came under attack on multiple fronts Thursday morning. Aerial defenses intercepted a suspected Houthi missile launch heading for the Red Sea city of Eilat before it entered Israeli territory. And outside Jerusalem, three terrorists with automatic weapons fired on vehicles stuck in traffic at the main checkpoint into the city, killing one and wounding 13 others. Civilians shot and killed two terrorists at the scene, and security forces arrested the third and an anti-tank missile from Lebanon made a direct hit on a home in northern Israel. No injuries were reported. In Gaza, War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz says the operation in Rafah will begin after the population is evacuated and will continue during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan if there's not an outline for releasing the hostages. The war in Israel is fueling a global rise in anti-Semitism, especially on U.S. college campuses. A yet-to-be-released study by the Simon Wiesenthal Center of nearly 30 universities shows a free pass to promoting a pro-Hamas, anti-Zionist agenda.
1: Jewish students need to demand and should get just equal treatment to everyone else. Every other group is quote-unquote protected, and, uh, and uh, and they should be.
3: Rabbi Abraham Cooper says anti-Israel forces off campus are creating a poisonous atmosphere.
1: Going to the streets, blocking airport entrances, uh, and generally driving a narrative that now focuses on uh, the Gazans who are um, uh, in the middle of the firefight, of course, only placed in danger because of Hamas, but uh, Mm -hmm. with Israel no longer able to push the concerns over American and Israeli
3: hostages still being held by Hamas. Meanwhile, the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel submitted a report to the UN documenting brutal, intentional, and widespread sexual violence by Hamas during the
0: October 7th massacre. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. I want to pick up on that Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel. This truly is a disturbing report, and it was issued to the United Nations. More now on this story from Israeli media outlet I-24.
4: Of all the brutal, savage, and inhumane acts carried out by Hamas terrorists on October 7th, this may top them all. They forced families and friends to witness their loved ones being subjected to rape and sexual assault at gunpoint, among other acts of terrible sexual violence.
0: We are showing that um, this is not something that happened randomly uh, according to the discretion of one individual Hamas terrorist. This is something that was not uh, in contrast to the guidelines, but it was actually um, according to guidelines.
4: Yes, this was part of the plan. These were the orders. A report analyzing the use of sexual violence by Hamas, based on numerous testimonies from victims, first responders and witnesses, reveals that nothing happened just spontaneously. It was all pre-planned.
3: They planned the sexual violence. They planned the torture. They planned the uploading of it. Every single one of the fighters came with a GoPro. They uploaded it as they went along. And the entire world, pretty much from October 8th, is demanding that
4: Israel prove it. And this is perhaps what is so frustrating about the situation. The very detailed report was presented by the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel to various decision makers in the United Nations. It may leave no room for denial, but all around the world, too many people still choose to ignore the facts, leading to some quite uneasy realizations.
3: We have the visuals that they put up, and we, Israel, are the one that have to prove to the world that it happened, meaning that outside in the world, they were willing to believe the terror Hamas narrative.
4: That narrative continues to dominate, and anyone trying to undermine it pays a price.
0: When anyone comes out and tries to talk about what the Hamas did, they're uh, grilled at the stake and they're completely uh, there's all these violent attacks against them so it's really very very um it doesn't make any sense to try to expect that from survivors themselves to come forward
4: the war in gaza will end sooner or later the lessons learned about the world's reactions to actions of hamas most notably those of the horrible sexual violence will forever remain a sign of global hypocrisy
0: Well said. Well said. Just think about that. The October 7th attack on Israel is one of the most well-documented assaults in the history of the world. And yet, as was reported by I-24 News, there still is a blindness there. And this is where we leave the alphabet soup networks. That's because this is a spiritual blindness. This is an animus toward the Jews that comes from a spiritual place. Not necessarily a hereditary position or even a geopolitical position or a tribal position, if I can put it that way. This is spiritual blindness. One isn't born a hater. One has to be taught to hate. And as long as you're taught to hate a people group, you somehow proceed on those actions. You think, you believe, you act. There's a continuum there. So the only way all of that gets changed is by having that personal encounter with Jesus Christ, who, for the record, if you're interested, was a Jewish Messiah, but he is the savior of the entire world. So again, go through life with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another to try to discern the days and the times in which we live. That's why we're continuing to report on what's happening in Israel so that you can understand not just the daily activities in this horrific war, but you can see the mounting hatred toward the Jewish people. We've got a lot of news for you this hour. Put on that thinking cap. We're gonna think critically and biblically about life when we return. God's work in your life has prepared you with a unique message to share and a problem to solve. That truth is why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. God uses you to point to His goodness and to give you meaning and purpose. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877 Janet 58, that's 877 Janet 58, or go to In the Market with Janet partial.org. March 26th is going to be a big day before the High Court because that is the day that the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in the battle over access to a drug that's used in medical abortions. This is a case we've talked about quite a bit, and it's going to be a very important case in the days of Dobbs and the post-Roe world in which we find ourselves. But nothing happens by accident in my town, and so just in advance of these oral arguments— The journal Nature put out a study that took a look at telemed abortions. And the guest we're going to talk to is a man who understands the power of research and does it with, well, panache. He's just a tremendous researcher and so appreciate the way in which he approaches all of these studies that come out. Dr. Michael New is with us. He is Senior Associate Scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute an assistant professor at the Catholic University here in Washington, D.C. In addition to that, he's a fellow with the Witherspoon Institute, and he has both a Ph.D. in political science and a master's in statistics from Stanford University. Michael, thank you. The warmest of welcomes. And I should point out to our friends also, you are a prolific writer, and your pieces show up. All over the place, most notably in National Review on a regular basis. And you wrote a piece for them last week when this study came out. So tell me what Nature Magazine did. They published this study. What did they discover, or at least what does their study state?
1: Well, Nature Magazine, uh, or I should say it's a journal, uh, published a study uh, that looked at 6,000 women who obtained telemed chemical abortions. Uh, They obtained chemical abortions without an in-person medical exam. And this study was very quick to point out that these telemed abortions had a very low complication rate. You know, they found a low incidence of emergency room visits or complications. Uh, They were very quick to spin the results to indicate that these telemed abortions were somehow safe. Um, A closer look, and when you look closely, it tells a different story. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things I noticed was that they relied on surveys to determine how safe or unsafe these chemical abortions were. And about 25% of the women did not respond to a follow-up survey. So the authors of the study literally have no idea what happened to 25% of the women who obtained these Talaman abortions. And I think there's pretty good reason to believe that those women who did suffer either psychologically or physically, after the chemical abortion, will be less likely to fill out or return a follow-up survey. So again, the authors have no idea what happened to 25% of the women, but they're very quick to tout these dangerous chemical abortion drugs as being safe.
0: Yeah. So let me just restate what I heard you say so our friends understand why your observations are significant. So this doesn't pass scientific scrutiny because you've got a very flawed methodology in reviewing these. If you get 25% of the women that don't even respond to follow-up, if Let's just say, for argument's sake, all 25 percent had some sort of problem. That would be a significant impact on the negativity of telemed abortions. They didn't get the follow-up. Therefore, really, this study falls under its own weight. But as we know in Washington, Michael, so often this kind of research is done because it becomes a catalyst for public policy and it really has nothing to do with sound objective methodology, which is what science is supposed to be all about. So let me step away from this study and let me talk to you with someone connected with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which studies and studies and studies this issue and has since its inception. What do we know about women who get these telemed abortions? First of all, if I were to take someone down to the mall and get their ears pierced and they were an unemancipated minor, they have to sign a waiver. They have to sign a paper that says they understand what the possibilities are before the procedure begins. It's a pretty innocuous procedure, but nonetheless, there has to be a coverage of liability. Now you take a drug that is irreversible in its consequences. You don't know where the woman is in terms of her gestational age. You don't know if it's an ectopic pregnancy where the baby has implanted in the fallopian tube rather than the wall of the uterus. And if that's the case, this telemed abortion could kill not only the baby, but the mother as well. So talk to me about this.
1: Sure, absolutely. We know that chemical abortions are dangerous, and they're obviously fatal to unborn children, but pose serious health risks to the mother as well. And we know that if they're happen unsupervised, that just heightens those risks. I mean, as you said, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy and obtains a chemical abortion, that could be fatal. If she's further along in gestation than she realizes and obtains chemical abortion, that could pose serious health risks. And we know from like you know data where we have data from comprehensive health registries that these chemical abortion drugs are dangerous. Uh, There's two studies, one which looked at data from Finland, which again has socialized medicine and comprehensive health registry, and comprehensive data from the California Medicaid system. Both these studies show that chemical abortions have four times the complication rate as surgical abortions. So we look at comprehensive data. uh, Instead of these surveys, which often don't get responded to or don't get turned in, you do find powerful evidence that these chemical abortions do pose serious health risks.
0: Uh, And again, it just it doesn't practice what we would call sound practices in medicine. I mean, it's an abandonment because this entire issue, unfortunately, has been politicized. Michael, you and I both know that we have a parallel pandemic in this country. It wasn't just about COVID. It really is about the mental health crisis in this country. So mama takes these pills and she self-aborts at home. Telemed means you don't even have to see a doctor, for goodness sakes. And suddenly now her bathroom is turned into an abortion clinic and she self-aborts no support, nobody there whatsoever. I I, I don't think nature in publishing this study has even broached the question of the psychological impact of this. And yet there is one, is there not?
1: Oh, certainly. I mean, there is very good research showing that you know, women who obtain abortions uh, do suffer psychologically. And uh, post-abortion healing ministries you know, are aware that when it comes to chemical abortions, you know, these women often have to be handled differently. They often do encounter the remains of their unborn child uh, who they've aborted. Uh, and that can be obviously very difficult psychologically for them. So, yes, I mean, there are serious mental health risks involved with an abortion. Uh, you know, research shows that women who do kind of post-abortive healing ministry are aware of this. But of course, this is something the study doesn't bother to look at or consider.
0: Exactly right. Michael, as I come up to a break, just 30 seconds. Why is March 26th significant before the Supreme Court?
1: Uh, because there's oral arguments about uh, the constitutionality of the regulation of certain kinds of chemical abortions. The Biden administration has made policies more permissive. And thankfully, pro-life groups are pushing against that.
0: Yes, they are. And we're so grateful for what they've done. So this will be important. Again, this has everything to do with best practices in medicine. And when it comes to this abortion pill and telemed abortions... That word doesn't even come into play. Hot off the presses last night, Michael printed another piece at National Review Online, and it has to do with strategy for those who support abortion in this coming election year. More with Michael New right after this. Always a joy to spend time with Dr. Michael New. He is an assistant professor at the School of Business at Catholic University of America, as well as a senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. And he writes frequently for National Review, just posted a piece yesterday, dealing with an article that ran in Politico that talks about the internal conversation within the pro-abortion party uh, on how they're going to allocate funds and what various candidates they're going to support. Now, I should, by way of background, point out that looking at the midterm elections of 2022, and I'm just calling, I'm not being political, I'm simply calling the plays. And so the Democratic Party decided after the midterms that abortion was a, quote, winning issue. And so they've made it very much part of their hierarchy of issues they're going to be talking about. I- interesting, by the way, the first and second issues on the minds of voters, straight across the board as important as abortion is, the number one and number two issues are the economy and the border in that order. But nonetheless, uh, the Democratic Party has decided that this will be a winnable issue for them. And the president has tasked the vice president to be the point person on this. And she is now meeting regularly with pro-abortion groups on how they'll strategize for the election coming up in November. So what did Politico say, Michael? And tell us about this internal dialogue that's going on.
1: Sure. Obviously, the 2024 elections are certainly important. And uh, what this article says is that groups that support legal abortion are divided about how to spend scarce resources. Uh, These groups are divided among, do they spend money on supporting these pro-abortion candidates, or do they spend money on the ballot propositions in about 12 states where abortion will be on the ballot in either kind of a referendum or an initiative? And where a lot of the debates really taking place is that do they really think it's a good use of time or effort, especially money, to run these uh, ballot propositions or at least fund these ballot propositions in states you know that are conservative? You know, uh, again, there might be as many as twelve states where abortion is on the ballot. Uh, these include some very conservative states like South Dakota and Arkansas. And there seems to be a law of division uh, that many supporters of legal abortion think that uh, they just simply can't win in these conservative states and hence won't allocate serious resources to these ballot propositions, at least in conservative parts of the country.
0: Michael, I'm wondering if part of their thinking is that if the ballot initiative passes in a red state or a predominantly pro-life state, and it becomes the law of the land that it would be more effective for them to go judge shopping and find a judge who would put an injunction in place that would stop this under a legal talent uh, challenge put out by groups like Planned Parenthood. So it would get them faster to their desired outcome, which is fine. Put it on the books. It'll stay there for five minutes and we'll rip it down through the judicial system. We're seeing more and more challenges to these um, states that have pro-life uh, uh, protections in place. Tell me your thoughts on that.
1: I mean, the other side is certainly very aggressive about trying to counter any kind of pro-life law. I mean, the Dobbs decision was a big victory for us, and many states have enacted strong pro-life laws. Uh, the other side has not rolled over and played dead. You know, they have tried to you know, fight in different ways, including litigation. And they are trying to litigate uh, some of the strong pro-life laws that have been passed. Uh, so far, the Ives efforts, by and large, have delayed. You know, the enforcement of laws in some cases, you know, they did delay the enforcement of a heartbeat law in South Carolina. They have delayed to this day the enforcement of a heartbeat law in Florida. Uh, when laws are already in place, uh, these efforts have not been successful, but it's been pro-life need to be aware of. I mean, the other side is fighting us politically, but they've not given up on the judiciary either. I mean, they are judge shopping and trying to find sympathetic judges who might strike down the pro-life laws we've worked hard to pass.
0: Yes, absolutely. Let me go back to Florida, because you mentioned that this is going to be a battle royale in that state, uh, because what Ohio didn't have, this is what they should have gotten when they had that initial vote, is Florida requires a 60 percent vote to change something to the Constitution. What the pro-abortion forces want to do in Florida is enshrine the right to abortion on demand in Florida. But that the, the burden of proof, because this is a significant change, is a 60 percent vote to win. This is what they didn't have in Ohio. They lost the ability to bump it up to 60 percent. And now you've got it enshrined in the state constitution in Ohio. So talk to me about Florida on this.
1: Well, I think a couple of things. The other side is likely to make a big investment in Florida for two reasons. Yes. Uh, or actually a few reasons. First, I mean, it's a swing state. They think that this will just gin up turnout among supporters of legal abortion and help Joe Biden or whomever the Democratic presidential nominee is. Uh, Florida is a state uh, that is close to some other states where the unborn are protected and sadly has become kind of a destination state for a lot of women trying to obtain abortions. So I think there's a reason there why they're investing in Florida, uh, but I think again, pro-lifers have a good chance to win. Again, the other side needs 60% uh, to change the constitution. In states where pro-lifers have, you know, funded campaigns aggressively, we've kept the other side We've kept the other side under 60. They didn't break 60 in Kansas or Ohio or Michigan. And there's even a lot of Democrat constituencies in Florida that probably will not support this. Uh, see your citizens typically are not wild about legal abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Florida's a big Hispanic population. You know, some surveys show they've been trending pro-life. So I think this is certainly winnable for pro-lifers. You know, we can't fall asleep. We have to invest serious resources. But I think we can stop the other side from getting 60% in Florida.
0: Michael, I always love your optimistic approach toward these issues. But this takes us full circle to the whole issue of telemed abortions, does it not? Because you can pass legislation, but if there is no restriction, no prohibition put in place... To distribute telemed abortion drugs across state lines, as an example, then really, in the end, it's sound and fury signifying nothing, because all one has to do is just dial up their favorite pro-abortion doctor and get that drug.
1: Well, I mean, laws can be, I mean, laws aren't magical. Laws can always be circumvented, but the laws still do some good. I mean, women have obtained chemical abortion drugs through the mail. uh, That's certainly dangerous. But the pro-life laws we put in place have saved lives. We do see data increasing birth numbers in Texas, increasing birth numbers in other states with strong pro-life laws. This is strong evidence the laws are saving thousands of lives. They're not yeah. perfect, but they are doing a lot of good.
0: I couldn't agree more. And by the way, that's why we need to be praying about March 26th, that there be real clarity handed down from the court. That puts in best practices so that, that there are some restrictions in the way in which this abortion drug is distributed. Michael, thank you always for thoughtful conversation. Dr. Michael New, assistant prof at Catholic University and also senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Back after this. The Bible says the Word of God illuminates our walk through life. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Without it, we stumble and fall. In the Market with Janet Partial is designed to help you look at the headlines of the day through the lens of Scripture. When you become a partial partner, you help to make this broadcast possible. And as a partial partner, you'll receive exclusive benefits. So why not become a partial partner today? Call 877-Janet-58 or go to in the Market with inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. So there's an interesting segue here. We were just talking about best standard of practice when it comes to telemed abortions, and really there aren't any. Well, the same thing comes, I think, to be applied when we talk about the subject of transgenderism in this country. Are we really serving adolescents well? And what about the bludgeoning tool that's used to parents on a regular basis? That What would you rather have, a live daughter or a dead son? What thinking parent wouldn't want to say anything, anything? But then that begs the question, does it not? Are we really and truly facilitating better mental health in the lives of young people who struggle with gender dysphoria? Well, let me turn at this point to the American College of Pediatrics. This is an esteemed group from my estimation. I have appreciated their work for years. And joining me now is the vice president of that organization, Dr. Jane Anderson. She is a pediatric specialist with nearly 50 years of experience in pediatric medicine, She graduated from the University of California at Los Angeles Center for Health Science in 1975. She's a retired professor of clinical pediatrics, and she and her husband provide medical care to rural communities in impoverished countries. That's a real service if there ever was a definition of that word. But Dr. Anderson is also the lead author of a statement that has been put out by the American College of Pediatrics, entitled Mental Health and Adolescence with Incongruence of Gender Identity and Biological Sex. Here to help us understand all of that is Dr. Jane Anderson. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for being here. And I have to ask first, the catalyst for this, why did the American College of Pediatrics feel it was necessary to put out a statement?
2: Well, Janet, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And it's a great question so we, um, we want every child and every adolescent to thrive and be healthy, obviously. And so we decided to do uh, research and look at the scientific papers that had been published about adolescents' mental health, especially those adolescents who view themselves as transgender. Were we doing them a benefit? Uh, were we helping them when uh, medicine was advocating four kinds of interventions, the first being social affirmation using the correct pronoun in their words? Uh, second would be the use of puberty blockers to actually stop puberty in these young adolescents. Third was the use of cross sex hormones, giving the adolescent the opposite sex hormone in high doses. And then the fourth was the surgical procedures that are done to try and change the person externally into a person of the opposite sex. We looked at research for all four of those interventions and found that none of them singly or altogether had any beneficial effect on improving adolescents' mental health. And um, we are in a, a difficult situation in America because, uh, first of all, we have no long-term studies uh, here about those adolescents who are, quote, trans at such young ages and right before puberty. And secondly, we are going against, in our scientific medical communities, they are going against what the rest of the world has realized, and that is there is no benefit. And so countries such as Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Great Britain, France, they have all evaluated the same literature we evaluated And they said, pause, we must stop this intervention because it is not beneficial for our adolescents.
0: Wow. Stunning information. And I imagine that the uh, American College of Pediatricians will be swimming upstream because this is not unlike the people who cry from the roofs that uh, our greatest existential threat is climate change. So this is culturally cross-current right now. But what you're dealing with is objective facts by looking at these studies saying, listen, there is no benefit here that guts if you will the primary argument that's used to frighten parents into acquiescing into going through these one of these four uh, steps if not all four of them so what is it about the countries that you named before finland and the uk and france and sweden why have they hit the pause button whereas in america we are seeing in fact i have a stunning report in front of me that said 49 out of 50 states saw gender confusion rise over the last four years And Dr. Anderson, uh, statistics are not my strong suit, but when you start looking at upticks in states where patients have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, you've got Virginia, an uptick of 240%. Indiana, 247%. Utah, 193%. South Carolina, 171%. The numbers are all three-figure and all over 100%. That makes me start thinking that there's something at play here. Is this a social contagion?
2: And people have looked at that. Dr. Lisa Littman actually published a paper on what she termed rapid onset gender dysphoria that was happening primarily in young adolescent girls. Now, gender dysphoria has been known for decades. It was mainly seen in the past in um, preschool or early kindergarten, first grade boys. And if they were allowed to go through their natural puberty when their bodies and their brains especially are based in testosterone, they would end up at age 18, 19, viewing themselves as comfortable in their biological sex. In other words, they desisted, they did not persist in their identity as being um, in a body of the opposite sex. Um, however, what we're seeing now in the last uh, 7, eight, nine, 10 years are young girls in their adolescence, their young adolescents, 11, 12, 13, mm. who are viewing themselves as transgender. And um, Dr. Littman did attribute that or, you know, indicated that it is a social contagion. And if parents were to see what is happening on a lot of the social media, Instagram, TikTok, uh, the others. If a young um, adolescent just barely mentions, I'm feeling a little sad today, she will be bombarded with information that indicates to her, suggests to her, you're probably sad because you should really be a boy. And they will send out messages um, encouraging her, grooming her to say she's transgendered. These young girls are told, how to talk to their parents, how to say, I'm going to kill myself if you don't allow me to do this. They are told where they can get the the testosterone for girls or estrogen for boys. Planned Parenthood has become one of the number one um, providers of trans or cross sex hormones. The number of transgender clinics has risen exponentially. And so some people would also suggest Um, I hate to do this because I'm in medicine, and I think most physicians are in medicine because
0: we really do want to take good care of
2: patients. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I have to say, I'm sure money does play a part.
0: Yeah, well, uh, Planned Parenthood, exactly. If there are more pregnancy resource centers in America than Planned Parenthood centers, you know that money doesn't talk, it shouts. And this is now, unfortunately, a lucrative financial stream back into Planned Parenthood. So, uh, you know, um, like you said, you want to think, about the better nature of our, better angels of our nature, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Here's the other thing that I'm concerned about, and that is the silent epidemic of mental health in this country. It's a parallel pandemic to COVID. So I turned to Dr. Paul McHugh of Johns Hopkins University, who used to be the person who would do these sex reassignment surgeries, and he decided he would personally hit the pause button, and he discovered a panoply of issues that I thought were germane to the mental health crisis that we're dealing with, not the least of which was, Very often, there's a cluster diagnosis here. The DSM for years has referred to gender dysphoria as a mental health issue. And often, even when someone, if they're not being influenced on social platforms or Planned Parenthood is trying to woo them into their clinic to hurriedly get them on these puberty blockers and these hormones... What about the fact that there is uh, uh, perhaps a diagnosis there? For example, even in the autistic community, one third of the number staggering in the autistic community would identify themselves uh, as someone who is attracted either to the other sex or deals with gender dysphoria. So there's a mental health issue here. There
2: absolutely is. And when uh, studies have been done looking at what are called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, A-C-E, adverse childhood experiences such as sexual abuse as a child, physical abuse, domestic violence in the home, drug use or alcohol use in the home, uh, previous suicide in the home. Um, Those, excuse me, those factors um, are seen in a much higher incidence in adolescents who identify as transgender. Um, and so we, we should take a- and also uh, just... By itself, depression and anxiety are seen at a much higher incidence in mm. teens who are transgendered, and these are diagnoses that are happening years before they say they are transgendered. So, um, we would urge you know parents, teachers, professionals, physicians take care of that young adolescent as far as their mental health needs, because most of them do indeed have an underlying mental health diagnosis, and they should be helped and they can be helped. Um, And you're right. the, The parents are often browbeaten with the idea of, you know, well, your teenager is just going to commit suicide, and the statistics do not bear that out. So we do know that those individuals who identify as transgender have an increased suicide risk. And in some studies, up to 13-fold. Well, that is a horrible statistic. But if you look at other teenagers just – I'm sorry to say, but just with depression – that increases their probability of trying to commit suicide by a factor of 20. Mm -hmm. So these are confounders. Autism, as you mentioned, is seen more frequently in transgender teens. That increases the risk factor of suicide. Anorexia increases the risk factor. And so we need to take care of these teens by their mental health concerns rather than instituting medical treatment.
0: Uh, One of the reasons why I'm thrilled to be talking to you, Dr. Anderson, is because this is compassionate care, and this is a conversation about really the best practices that we can have for adolescents who struggle in this area. Dr. Jane Anderson is the vice president of the American College of Pediatricians and the author of the statement they've just put out on the mental health of adolescents with incongruence of gender identity and biological sex. We have more time with Dr. Anderson. I'm thrilled more after this. quite sure that our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson is a breath of fresh air for so many parents who are struggling in this area and listening all across the country. This doesn't support the narrative that has been affixed, unfortunately, to politics and aggressive money that's being made out of this entire issue. But it's not. The core should be the care of the patient, right? Particularly our young people who are really the targeted audience. And that targeted audience, by the way, is getting younger and younger all the time. As Dr. Anderson pointed out earlier, Planned Parenthood stands on the ready to offer the hormones as quick as you want them. But is that really the answer? Well, the American College of Pediatricians took a look at 60 studies where they looked at the mental health of gender incongruent youth. And they've come away with some pretty strong resolutions and uh, observations. And I'm so thankful that I've got a link in my website. So if you want to dig deeper into this, you can read it for yourself. But Dr. Anderson is vice president of the American College of Pediatricians and also the lead author of this statement that they put out entitled Mental Health and Adolescence with Incongruence of Gender, Identity and Biological Sex. So, Dr. Anderson, if if the cudgel that is used to beat parents into the quick affirmation of this brutalization of their child, I can't think of a better word. And the threat is always they'll commit suicide if you don't. I'd be curious to see if we have any studies after transition. In other words, if a suicidal ideation was allegedly there pre-procedure, one would think it would be absence post-procedure. But I'd be curious to know, because you and I understand that this is really a condition of the human heart. If you somehow change the outside, you'll fix the hole on the inside And the surgery comes and goes, and not only does it not fix the hole, it leaves you with a lifetime of disabilities that you have to deal with from incongruence to uh, infertility for the rest of your life, and now you've got more burdens than you had before, as well as if there was an unidentified mental health issue there, that didn't dissipate with the surgery, it continues as well. So has anyone done any post-procedure studies on suicidal ideation in these patients?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. Yes, there are quite a few, but they are on um, adults who transitioned as adults. And so we don't really right now that I know of have any long term studies on these young adolescents who are transitioning at, you know, age 11, 12, 13. Um, the long-term study, one of the best ones, is out of Sweden, and they've been very supportive of their transgender population for decades. And they have a, a longitudinal study, uh, and they're able to follow people over time because they have nationalized health care. And you wouldn't believe it if I told you, but their incidence of suicide um, after transition for years as an adult is 19-fold higher mm. than the general population. Wow. This, There is no evidence that we are helping anybody um, be with their underlying mental health concerns by trying to imitate or put them into a different body. Uh, Let me just mention the adolescent brain. I think most parents out there um, understand intuitively, if they haven't already read about, how the adolescent brain is very immature. And since the uh, onset of CT scans, we've been able to follow adolescents over time and watch their brains change and mature. Uh, Most people agree that the area of the brain that is important in strategizing and planning and problem solving and weighing risk and benefit, the prefrontal cortex isn't mature until they're around 25 years of age. Mm. And, you know, the, the car rental companies know this, they won't, you know, rent to somebody uh, younger than that. But um, we are allowing these preteens whose brains are not mature to make lifelong decisions um, without the ability to really strategize and plan ahead. And um, worse, the adults in their lives, the teachers, the professionals, the physicians, who they should look to for truth, um, even as young children look to their adults in their lives to teach them what's true, we as adults then are uh, confirming to them A lie. We're saying you're right. You think you're really a boy. You're you were born a girl, but you think you're really a boy. You know what? You're right, and we'll treat you like a boy. And that internalizes into the teens, the young child, or the teens' brain. Oh, see, I am right. These adults in my lives and professionals are confirming that I was born in the wrong body. Instead of confronting them and saying this is a delusion, we don't treat patients with anorexia nervosa who come into our office a teenager weighing 80 pounds and say to her, sweetie, you're right. You really are too fat. Just go home and keep dieting. It's okay. No, we put them in the hospital. We fear for their lives. We force feed them. We give them nutrition. We give them mental health counseling because it's a lie. They're deluded to think that they're fat. And how we can treat these young children differently when they say, I view myself, I'm really a boy instead of a girl it's the adults in their lives who I blame.
0: Yes, yeah, and on that point, can I ask you a philosophical more than a medical question? And that is, 20 years ago, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Why now? What was the catalyst for all of this?
2: Oh, you know, Janet, it's a great question. And I I don't, I mean, I, I don't know really. I think there's a, a move to destroy families, to destroy childhood. Um, There's been an influx of pornography into the uh, school system and into the libraries to um, allow children to view things they shouldn't be viewing at their young ages. Um, Our whole society has become sexualized in horrible ways, like you talk about all the time. So I think that's all a piece of it. Plus, there's um, this desire to be known and to be in relationship, and I can I can bring people around me to love and care for me if I change my identity.
0: Wow, that is a superb answer. Dr. Anderson, in full disclosure, you're one of my heroes. I so appreciate the work that you do and I thank you for offering a clear voice and a cacophony of voices out there that really, at its heart, and I'm, I'm sad to say this, that really doesn't have the best interest of the patient at heart for whatever reason, be it political, be it ideological, be it, I I, I don't know, fill in the blank, other than a nation that's just become, well, good is called evil and evil is called good. I guess I can't say it any other way. So I appreciate the objective review done by the American College of Pediatricians. It says, listen, facts, as John Adams said, are stubborn things. These are the facts. It's why so many countries have hit the pause button. May we be led to do exactly the same thing. Thank you, Dr. Anderson, so much. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time.